Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. How are we doing today, family? Great to see you all, and for those of you joining us from home as well, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you're here or at home for that matter and don't have a Bible handy, that's fine. They're gonna, those verses are going to be up on the screen here momentarily. We've been in the middle of a series entitled Blessed, doing some redefining for our times about what it means to actually be blessed. Uh, at least from our perspective, it's sort of a redefinition because of the way we've been cultured to think of what it means to be blessed. But Jesus actually has a definition of what that term means that transcends everything we're going through right now and everything we're likely to go through from this moment until the moment that we see him. My friend Russ Moore, about a year ago, in looking at the text, exactly the text that we're going to be looking at this morning, recounted the story of a very famous neuroscientist, uh, a gentleman who was really a pioneer in the career, in, in the area of dementia, what would actually eventually become known as, as Alzheimer's disease. But later in his life, it was tragically discovered that this man who had researched this disease, who had made major advances in the treatment of this disease, who had built institutions designed specifically and exclusively for the study of this disease, was himself now suffering from this same, uh, this same condition. And, and he finally was placed because his faculties had gotten to a point it was he was no longer safe to live on his own. He was actually placed in one of the hospitals that he had helped to build. Now, because he still had a lot of his mental faculties, this is a strange disease. As those of you know, my mother and my wife's father are both struggling with this right now. You never know exactly what it's going to do or when it's going to do it. For this particular gentleman, it left all of his medical school training intact. And because of that, and because he built the institution, and because his being admitted into this institution, everything around him was, was rather familiar. He would get up every morning, and he would put on a white coat, and he would go room to room, and he would do this because, again, he saw himself not as a patient, but as a doctor. And because the medical staff in that institution, number one, recognized that this is just a part of the disease, he's not doing any harm, and also because of their high level of respect for him, they're all thinking, well, we wouldn't even have jobs, and this place wouldn't even exist if it weren't for this man. They just decided to play along. And so for weeks and weeks and weeks, he put on the coat, he went room to room, he checked patient charts, he consulted with patients, he consulted with the nursing staff, he did everything that he had always done for his entire career until one day, he walked in unbeknownst to himself to his own room. He picked up the chart and he saw his own name. And with everything else that dementia had taken from him at that moment, he still, as I just told you, retained his medical knowledge. So he begins reading what's going on inside his own brain until he finally reaches a point that he drops the clipboard and he cries out, God help me. Now, I think about a story like that, someone who has all of this knowledge. In fact, I've actually talked with oncologists, cancer doctors who themselves have had cancer. And every one of them has told me the worst part about having cancer for me was that I was an oncologist. 
right? If I get cancer, I'm going to know. I'm going I'm to get an education as much as I can, but I'm not going to go to medical school, right? So I'm not going to know every detail of what's happening. But someone with that degree of specialty, when they get something like that in their body, they are consciously aware in every moment of everything that's happening inside their body at the cellular level. And I have to think, there cannot be anything quite so terrifying as to know something and not be able to do anything about it. Solomon was right, wasn't he, in Ecclesiastes, when he says, in much knowledge is much vexation. There are times when we know things, but our knowledge by itself doesn't really fix anything. I I thought about examples like that the last time I saw data from a denominational agency on the use of pornography by Christian men. What we observe from that study is that there's actually very little difference. And you plug in anything you want, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, domestic violence, whatever you want to plug into there. But the study I was looking at was about porn and that there's very little difference in practice between Christian men and non-Christian men, which means whatever that statistic is now, it's usually been about 30%, so about three out of 10 men in the Western world, which means almost identical, three out of 10 of the men I'm looking at right now, three out of the 10 men that are looking at me on the other side of that camera, that's about it. But the data reveal that among Christian men, here's the difference, the emotional toll is far worse. And the emotional consequences far greater. Let me give you a quote from that study. Those who both morally object to and regularly consume pornography is in some ways an inevitable consequence of a culture that repudiates the sexual mores of a dominant culture while simultaneously and quite intentionally refusing to disengage from that culture. We might call this moral incongruence. These men know passages. Many of them grew up in church. They can quote 1 Corinthians 6 by heart. They know that text says, God's eventually going to kill me for this. But their behavior doesn't change. And like an oncologist looking at their own medical chart or the famed doctor trapped in his own memory care ward, they know what this is doing to them, but they seem incapable of being able to do anything about it. And so as we continue our series on what it means to be blessed this morning, we have to recognize at least part of living the blessed life means figuring out how to close that gap. How do we close the gap between the abstract things we say we believe and the incongruent way that we sometimes live and behave and even some of those unhealthy, unspiritual habits? I'm not talking about allegiance to doctrine this morning, as important as that is. I'm talking about allegiance to a person. To Jesus himself, it requires a change in disposition. And as we're going to see this morning, that requires a change in appetite. It requires a change in what you're hungry for. It requires a change in what you're thirsty for. On Wednesday night, we've got a group that's studying the cost of discipleship, a book written in 1936 by the late Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer understood this. Bonhoeffer watched a church filled with moral incongruence in Nazi Germany in the 1930s. And he wrote this book for one reason, to remind us that a disciple of Jesus is not someone who's filled their minds with a significant level of knowledge. A disciple of Jesus hears his voice and obeys. And it's in the middle of of, of that treatise that Bonhoeffer said the following. The call of Jesus teaches us that that our relation to the world has been built on an illusion. All the time we thought we had enjoyed a direct relationship with men and things. This is what had hindered us from faith and obedience. 
Now we learn that in the most intimate relationships of life, in our kinship with father and mother, brothers and sisters, in married love, in our duty to the community, direct relationships are impossible. Since the coming of Christ, his followers have no more immediate realities of their own, not in their family relationships, nor in the ties with their nation, nor in the relationships formed in the process of living. If you wonder why we are so adamant around here that Christians should not marry non-Christians, you're reading the words right now. We cannot establish direct contact outside ourselves except through him, through his word, and through our following of him. To think otherwise is to deceive ourselves. In other words, when I'm tempted to think that things, okay, I'm trying to talk my wife right now into switching from a 43-inch to a 65-inch because it is, after all, football season, right? And so is it okay to have a little tussle about whether or not it's the right time to do something like that? It's fine. Go buy a 65-inch, right? But the, the issue then is when we begin to think that thing, when I, if I start to develop in my mind, it's all right, once I go to Target or Walmart or order that thing off of Amazon, I get it plugged in and I sit down, I will never want anything else ever again. Forgetting that that 43-inch I bought in an impulse purchase on the way home from a deacon retreat I taught. Yeah, I remember all the details. I did a deacon retreat for a church. They paid me very well to do that for them, and that money apparently was burning a hole in my pocket, and I told my wife on the way home, I'm stopping at Walmart. That's where our Samsung 43-inch came from. But, but the issue is, is when I think the thing now, I'm never going to want that ever again. Food, drink, relationships, we think any of that is going to ultimately satisfy, and the truth of it is none of that brings satisfaction until it is filtered through your connection to Jesus. Let me tell you why that is. It's because human beings can be filled with all kinds of things. We can get to a point where we've had enough to eat. We can get to a point where we've had enough to drink. We get to a point where we are sexually satisfied. We can get to a point where we are filled with all manner of things, but eventually those things come back because there's one thing the human heart will never run out of, and that's desire. It's just there. And so in light of that recognition, Jesus says the following in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be We've already been told if we want to be blessed, it starts with a confession of spiritual bankruptcy, right? I got nothing. I'm coming to the Lord with an empty tank. The willingness to extract the greatest joy out of the deepest sorrow. Don't be, don't be afraid to mourn. Embrace your mourning because in your mourning you will find comfort. And to do all of that, as we talked about two weeks ago, with a meekness that is unassuming and doesn't seek what I want first. Now he says, assuming those postures doesn't take away your desire, but here's what it will do. It will make you hungry for the right things. All of us have challenges when it comes to the consistency between what we know and believe and how we behave. And Jesus says, if you want to close that gap, you do it at the point of desire. Let me give you three characteristics of this desire that Jesus says is a blessed desire. Number one, it's a desperate desire. Notice the way he idiomatically expresses this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's 
That's an interesting word play, particularly in the original languages, because if you take the word hunger and you take the word thirst out of this sentence, they're simply complementary terms that mean the same thing if they stand alone. They both carry exactly the same meaning, just desire. It is when they are put together in the Greek language in this structure that they begin to be expressed idiomatically as hunger and thirst. You ever been hungry? You ever been hangry? You can feel it, can't you? All right? Uh, and you, you, we've, we even have developed all these really colorful ways. We have a friend of ours in Kentucky, and she used to go, man, my belly button's sucking on my backbone. <laughs> like, there's all these ways that we describe it. But you think about that. That's like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I felt that way. Some of you are going to use that language from here on out. You're going to never forget that because you felt that way before. You've been hungry. And it, it's weird. You, you can feel your blood sugar drop. Your energy level gets low. You might get a little irritable. Even with those experiences, though, when we compare ourselves with the rest of the world, we've never really been hungry, have we? I've told that to my, my kids, especially my boys, when they, when they were younger and they'd come into the house, I'm starving. And unfortunately for them, they have a father who's traveled extensively in the third world. So my response was, boy, you ain't ever even been hungry. Won't you just hush? Refrigerator's over there. That's us, right? That's the kind of culture we live in. There are actually very few, we're feeding a few of them, but, but relative to the rest of the nation, hungry people. And, and, and that's because of the privilege we have of living where we live. And even when we don't have it all together, we have such means that we can often hide it, can't we? We can live in a gated community. We can put degrees on our walls. We can have full refrigerators and cabinets. And people like us have been culturally conditioned to never admit that we're hungry or thirsty for anything. And we certainly don't want to appear desperate about it. The late Eugene Peterson used to say that in the ancient world, people didn't expect to be happy. And when they experienced happiness, they intentionally hid it because they feared the gods might vindictively take it away. And today it seems like we've just turned that on its head, right? It's like we perpetually expect happiness and we are full of resentment when we don't get what we want. And that's what makes Jesus' statement here such a challenge to us because to demonstrate that level of desperation is to admit we don't have what we need. To admit that I'm not winning, I'm not successful, I'm not on top of my game. And I wonder how many people I'm preaching to right now who, who feel like this. You, you come in here, you log in, you tune in every week, and you, you're defeated, you're crushed, and you're hopeless. But when people ask you, how are you doing, especially out here in the foyer, you go, oh, I'm, I'm blessed. Because that's what you're supposed to say in church. How are you? Oh, I'm, I'm blessed. You're afraid somebody's going to think you're not Christian or that you're spiritually weak. If you say, you know what, I'm honestly, I... This past week, I thought I'd just stop trying. I need somebody to pray for me. I don't know if I'm going to make it. And so you pretend and you stay hungry because you don't want to appear desperate. And Jesus says that desperation is what gets you there. That's what gets you to me. Bonhoeffer was right. Everything I need comes ultimately through him. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to be desperate for something only Jesus can give me. 
I've got to be, it's got to be a desperate desire. But secondly, it has to be a, a healthy desire. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. About a year ago, I was confronted with the reality of how my diet, some of my lifestyle choices, not getting enough rest, eating too much, not exercising enough, was starting little by little to, to steal my health. Now, I had had that lecture before from, from physicians when I was in my 30s. But when you're in your 30s, you're invincible. Not really, but you think you are, right? This time, both the numbers and the circumstances of life kind of caught up with me. And I'm sitting in that doctor's office, and I realize that those minor little short-term course corrections I had made over the years really didn't fix anything. They just sort of temporarily detoured me, and then I would find myself right back on the same road. Anybody been on a fad diet like Atkins or keto or something? I'm not even telling you that stuff's wrong. I'm just saying, if that's all you got, you're just going to get big again. Because that was me, right? I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to go right back to where I was. In other words, short-term goals produce medium-range mediocrity and long-term reversal. That, that's what they do. And, and so something different has to happen here right? My, my habits short-term would change, but my mindset wouldn't. Exhibit A, I would lose 10 pounds and reward myself with a trip to Krispy Kreme. Yeah. That's like the alcoholic saying, I got my one-year pen. I think I'm going to celebrate by going to the Mac down on German Street and just getting hammered. That won't work. It won't work. I, I got what I did. I, I white-knuckled through this, so now let me get back to the way things were. Brothers and sisters, you can't just change what you ingest short-term. You have to change what you crave long-term. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. And he's very specific. The thing you have to crave, the thing I have to crave is righteousness. I have to be spiritually starved. For righteousness, now that's a word rich with meaning. The late John Stott helps us out greatly with this, just summarizing the, the way the Scriptures use the term righteous in three ways. And Jesus really is implying all three. First is this positionally righteous state based on the perfection of Jesus, based on his substitutionary atoning death for my sins. My union with him means I am positionally, legally from the throne of God declared to be righteous. That means I don't have to approach a God who's angry with me anymore. Don't hide your desperation from him on the basis of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's not angry with you. Secondly, morally righteous. Because if you put your faith in his death and resurrection, it's going to have an effect on you. The righteousness of Christ given to me means I'm now capable of things I wasn't capable of before in the power of the Holy Spirit, to live out the very holiness that Jesus expects of me. And then the Scriptures talk about a social righteousness. In other words, my union with Jesus spills over into how I relate to my family and my loved ones and my neighbors, both Christian and non-Christian, it it, 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 how I view and serve the poor, the marginalized, in, in exactly the same way that Jesus took pity on me. So here's the big idea. Your spiritual hunger and thirst has to have a singular focus. You know, almost every woman I've ever talked to who's been pregnant has had cravings of some kind. And all the cravings are different. 
I, I remember Amy's first one, first trimester with Sam, our oldest. Uh, and this is 20 plus years ago. You know, it was pretty rough. She was sick a lot. And to the point that where I, I worried, is she getting enough nutrition? Is the baby getting enough nutrition? And then it was almost like clockwork, like right at the end of that first 90 days. I go to pick her up at seminary one night. She had a class and it was over at nine o'clock. And she comes down, and I mean, I'm literally, I'm not going into too much detail here. I'm prepared for her to be sick. All right, I'll just put it that way. I was not prepared for this night. She walks down the stairs. She sees me. She makes a beeline for me. And with an intensity in her eyes I had not seen in some time, she said, I want steak. And I said, baby, it's 9.30 at night. I don't think anything. She said, you didn't hear me. <laughs> I, like, look at my face. I, I, so this old boy found some steak. Because that's, that's what had to happen, right? Nothing else in that moment would satisfy the craving. I think what it was is Sam wanted steak. Maybe that's what it was. Jesus tells us that craving, that singular focus, I got nothing else on my mind right now, but that must be righteousness. What's that look like? Well, David gives us a glimpse of it in Psalm 73. And by the way, this is the adulterer, murderer, who later repents. I don't mean he said, I'm sorry. I don't mean he made excuses. I don't mean he blame shifted. I mean, he really made things right. And he went through a long process for that. And he finally reaches the point in Psalm 73 where we get a glimpse of what it's like to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing I desire on earth besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I want to be like God in whose image I am created. I want to be like God in every way that it is possible for a finite, sinful human being to be like him. I want the character of his kingdom. I want the fruit of his spirit to ooze out of me as I sleep. I want the will of God, whatever that involves. I am desperate for something healthy. Here's the final thing about this desire. This kind of desire. Jesus says we'll be rewarded. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That word is, um, was used in the ancient world to describe cattle who had been fed, fattened up for slaughter, basically. But they've been fed to the point that they had gorged themselves. Right? And this, this is where the paradox comes in. If you've ever eaten too much, you know the one thing you no longer have is a desire for more food right? I mean, even the smell of it, you're like, I got to get out of here. So what kind of sense does it make to say, if you want to be filled to the point of not wanting anymore, you must want more? We, we got to do a little thinking about this. What does this mean? And in, in many cultures around the world, obesity is a status symbol. Did you know that? They're going to look at you, particularly in the third world, and they're going to go, how in, the, how in the world else could you have that big old gut unless you had the means to provide yourself with that? There are other places around the world, like where we are, for example, where it's almost just the opposite. 
And, and we actually know this. Correlative studies have been done that demonstrate the relationship between food insecurity and poverty and, and the ability of people not just to be able to eat, but to eat healthy, to drink water instead of soda, to, drink, to eat vegetables instead of the processed stuff in the package and in the can. We know this. And so in, in, in America, in Europe, we see a thin person. What do we assume? You can afford a dietitian. You can afford a good diet. You, you can afford that trip to the gym, that personal trainer. You can do it. But in both situations, what is perceived in both of those cultures about that person's appearance is they have what they need. They are what they need to be. Blessed are those who do not desire anything else. That's what our culture teaches us. That's why the spiritual hunger of Jesus here seems paradoxical. Because in the spiritual realm, spiritual satisfaction is brought about by a desperate hunger and thirst. Let me give you some pictures of what this looks like in the scriptures. Beginning in Philippians 3. This is the Apostle Paul. His greatest desire is the following that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He's striving to attain. It was the pursuit of his entire life. This is the same guy who said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But that same man whose hunger and thirst for righteousness never died in this world, also said this, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Spiritual satisfaction from continual spiritual hunger. That's the reward. And by the way, that's not merely Paul's experience. It is the promise of Jesus our Lord reminds us, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Over and over and over and over and over and over. You want to be fed? You first have to be hungry. And you have to be hungry for the right things because I don't serve junk food in my kingdom. You want to be quenched, you have to be thirsty. And when your craving is both desperate and righteous, the promise of all of Scripture is ultimate satisfaction. Come. Everyone who thirsts. Pastor Chris Eads did a great job unpacking that one for us last week, didn't he? Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Some of you need to break the incongruence between what you say and what you believe, between the destructive behaviors and attitudes that are harming you and those you love. And what we get from this text, brothers and sisters, is that that does not come merely from behavior modification. You don't get there merely by unplugging your internet connection or pouring out all the whiskey or taking an anger management course. God has to change what you crave. And you have to be desperate enough for him to go to him only 
to get what you crave. There's one, one craving, so singular, so righteous that its end is full satisfaction. You guys have, um, have no idea how grateful we are for your prayers in these recent weeks. Mom, at this point, is still with us, at least as far as I know. She was yesterday. Um, some time ago, they put her on hospice, and they told her, told us it might be a matter of weeks or it could be up to about six months. Very quickly, her oxygen levels went down. Her organs have started to shut down. Um, two weeks ago when I preached, I, we honestly didn't think she even had a week left. That's what the professionals were telling us. And so she's, she's already outlived their expectations. At this point, we're just sort of waiting. She's comfortable. She's at peace. And I'm grateful for that. I'm more grateful still that the moment we heard she was on hospice, that the COVID restrictions lifted. And so we made a real quick whirlwind trip to see her. They let Amy and I both in. Sometimes when I talk to her on the phone, she recognizes me. Sometimes she doesn't. I can't really talk to her on the phone any longer. She's no longer speaking. But, but at that point, it was just kind of six and one, half dozen in the other. So it just brought a lot of joy to my heart when I, I stepped into the room and I pulled my mask off and I looked down at her and she looked up at me and she said, well, hey, son, that she knew who I was. And we had several hours together in that room my mother, my wife, and myself. Just spending some time together. And, and several of you have prayed and you've said, thanks for, I, I've thanked you for, and, and you're, you've been concerned about my well-being and, I, and I, I appreciate that. And we'll, we've still got some grieving to do, obviously. But here's, here's the, the goodness of God at this point. It was heavy those last 10 minutes or so, walking out and almost really knowing, like, this is it. I'm not going to see her again on this side of heaven. But then I thought, how many kids speak to their mom for the last time and don't know it? Man, God is good. And as you can imagine, the, the blessing in all of that um, engages the emotions. And so there are several times throughout that three-hour period that I would, just, I would just cry. But what got me was toward the end. I'm thinking, I wonder how this is going to end, because she had moments of lucidity and moments where she would just kind of fall back asleep, even then. And I heard noise outside. As it turns out, one of the nurses had plugged her iPhone Bluetooth into the central sound system, and she was playing hymns, old hymns that Mama used to sing when we were growing up. And Mom heard it, and she said, what is that? So I cracked open the door. And all of a sudden, this woman, who hasn't been able to cook for herself, dress herself, sometimes doesn't even know who her loved ones are, started to mouth every single word. Oh, Lord, my God. When I, in awesome wonder, consider all, the worlds thy hands have made. I see the stars. I see the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul. 
my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. The MP3 kept going, and so did my mother. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. At this point, her oldest son's holding it together pretty well. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. But the thing that just destroyed me was this one. This woman who's had almost everything at this point taken from her. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And especially that last verse. Blessed assurance, all is at rest. I and my Savior are happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. Now, I get that music is stored in a different part of the brain. I understand all the neurological implications, different part of the psyche. But I'd say, number one, that, that really just stresses the importance of music in our lives. And I'm equally convinced that there's something else going on there. Because with everything this disease has taken from her, so much that she no longer has, she is blessed. Because she is filled. So let me tell you what grieves my heart. It's probably not going to be many days now before I'm not going to see my mama again on this side of eternity. That does not grieve my heart so much as this thought. That there are so many people in this room and watching me from home of sound mind who still have everything that has been taken from her, but you are far worse off than her. Because you are not filled. Because the larger reality, guys, is we're, we're really not much different than my mama. We're really not. We, in many ways, are just like that doctor I mentioned at the outset of this message. We're looking at our own spiritual charts, and if we're honest with ourselves, the only thing we can do is drop it and cry out, God, help me. But we know that he will. Because blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. What are you hungry for? Your answer to that question. I mean, what are you singularly hungry for? Your answer to that question makes all the difference in the world. Heavenly Father, thank you for such a people as those who I get to shepherd at Covenant Church. Father, keep us from distractions in this hour. Keep our focus singular. Lord, with all that's going on in the world right now, how easy it is for any of us to be redirected, distracted. Lord, may we feel the hunger that you have placed in our souls. 
May we seek you singularly. And Father, may we do so on the promise that you will fill us to capacity. Lord, if there are people here who don't know you as Savior, people watching from home who have never put their faith and their trust in you and given you their lives, that blessed assurance is theirs as well. It's, it's there for the taking. And so, Father, we pray now that you would draw them to yourself and that you would give glory to yourself in what your word will accomplish in these coming moments. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.